Let heaven come as we consider now your word and are faithful to put it into practice, we pray. For your glory's sake. Amen. Thank you, Simon. Um, So let's start by reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 13, and I think that's about to come up. So let me just read that. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. And thank God for his words. So because of what Jesus has done, God has created a new family and he's made us brothers and sisters with him and also with one another. And this means that as we learn from all over the New Testament and in the Gospels and the Epistles that we are called to love one another. And in a way, this is so basic for us as Christians. It's that, you know, we hear it all the time um, that we almost don't even think about it, you know, what it is to love one another. Um, and because we hear it all the time and we've been hearing it for years, we all know what it means, right? Okay. Um, well, what I'd like to talk about this morning is how this, this passage in Hebrews gives us some perspectives on what being the family of God might be that we might not normally think about. So let me just say that I want to highlight three things that were in this reading that we just read. Um, The first thing is that the passage says that many brothers and sisters have been brought to glory. And in the process of doing that, Jesus himself was made perfect by what he suffered. And secondly, in doing all of this, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So there's this sense that shame has been taken away and has been taken and been replaced by a relationship of equality because brothers and sisters are you know we normally think of brothers and sisters as equal to one another and then lastly there's this great joy in the last two verses as Jesus declares the name of God over his brothers and sisters and presents his new family to the father so I'm going to try and explain these things from within the context of the book of Hebrews. Now, if, you, if you've read the book of Hebrews, it's, it's sort of like, it's a bit like Romans. It's a, it's a difficult book to understand. And I had my mind sort of blown a little bit, again, in trying to wrestle with this over the last few days. Um, but I would like to try and share a few things about what this might mean for us as a community today. So first of all, what does it mean that we have been brought to glory Um, The passage says that in bringing us to glory, he made us his brothers and sisters and that he's not ashamed of us. So what does that mean? Um, And I guess if if we've ever thought deeply about these things, about what it is that the glory that we share and have, we probably think of it in terms of our future state, right? After we die. After we die and we go to heaven or after we die and we're resurrected into the next life. That's when we, we think that we're going to be glorified. But have we ever considered the fact that that state of glory, there, there might be an element of it in the here and now, okay? And this is an important question for us to think about and meditate on. 
because it bears on our understanding of salvation what we're saved for. Okay, are we saved so that we can go to heaven and be with the Lord? Absolutely. But is there more to it than just that? Is, is there more to salvation than just booking our ticket on the great white train? Okay. Um, and I want to suggest that there is, and you know that I'm going to say that because I'm always saying this kind of thing. Um, now, Hebrews 1, chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, at the start of the book of Hebrews, it says that it begins with this great declaration about who Jesus is. It says that after having made purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, where he has been made the heir of all things and now rules over the whole creation. Okay? But what about us? What does Hebrews say about us? Bringing us to glory, okay? Well, Paul says something about this, very similar in Ephesians chapter two, and I'm gonna read it. This is, this is a big, a big uh, chunk of scripture here, but I want you to listen carefully to what I'm saying here, what Paul is saying. So God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it appears that though we still live in a broken world and struggle with sin and experience pain and death, nonetheless, there is a spiritual reality that we are seated with Jesus right now at his Father's right hand in heaven. But what does this actually mean? Well, I want to suggest that being brought to glory now and sitting at the right hand of the Father in Christ now refer not just to a future state that we will enjoy after the resurrection from the dead, but also to the present time, and that that refers to the fullness of what Jesus has saved us for. So the passage from Ephesians 2 that I just read out says that we were created in Christ for good works. And, go, and not just that, that God prepared these good works for us um, beforehand. And what I understand that to mean is that in saving us from sin and death, Jesus at the same time, okay, in saving us from sin and death, in other words, booking our seat on the train, okay, at the same time, once that's done, Jesus is sanctifying and equipping us to rule over the creation and to restore the world to the rule and reign of Jesus or God. And the mandate that we have now is now the Great Commission to disciple all the nations. Um, and the effect of doing this is effectively to, to restore our original calling as humans. So let's look at that, our original calling as humans, now, I did once talk about this with relation when we did the thing on economics, we did the, the series on spheres, but I want to just talk about that for a second with relation to what it might mean for us as family. 
So the glory that we have been brought to in Jesus is the same glory that humans had before the fall, okay? That might sound a bit controversial, but bear with me. And of course, I think it's going to be much more than that original glory than we had before the fall. But I want to think about that in terms of the calling that God put on humans at the very beginning. That calling to mankind was to dominion, okay? We have to be careful with this word. Um, But what it means in the biblical context is to rule over the creation, to look after it, to develop it, look after it, to beautify it, and increase its worth. Now, this wasn't just a calling to be gardeners or caretakers, but it was actually to be kings and queens in the creation. And that is not to say that there's anything wrong with being a gardener or a caretaker. And I think probably the best way of thinking about it is to think about king gardeners or queen caretakers, okay? The calling to steward and look after the creation and to extend God's kingdom within creation is a glorious calling, but it's also an intensely normal calling at the same time. And it was God's good pleasure and his joy to create us and to entrust us with developing and beautifying the world in relationship with him and obedience to him. And one of the things that that would have resulted in, in terms of our relationships and the human society, would have been a very high level of harmony and love in relationships. Um, And not just that, those are the things we always talk about, harmony and love, and we often don't, we don't concretize what those things, what that would actually mean. Um, But what I want to suggest is that 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 harmony and love in human society would have been a, a sense of mutual interest leading to amazing levels of cooperation and collaboration on creative projects. So in in short, that social life that God imagined for us when he made us would have been an amazing kind of interlocking network of love, blessing, and a sort of off-the-charts creativity and productivity. Now, the world that we live in now, our broken world, it's marked, one of the things it's particularly marked by is a lack of trust between people. And um, economics and anthropo- economists and anthropologists recognize that one of the, the most foundational things in the development of countries or economies is trust. Um, low trust environments tend to be unproductive and high trust environments tend to be highly productive. So I don't know if any of you have heard of Vishal Mangalwadi. Have any of you heard of him? No? He's a... He's a Christian sort of philosopher, talks a lot about biblical worldview um, and the Bible's impact on the world. And he was once, um, he's from India, and he was once on a plane and he was coming to the UK and he was sitting next to a Sikh guy. And the Sikh says, oh, you're going to England? He says, great, you should come and work with me in England. England's great. People trust you in England and you can make money. People trust you and you can do business. And... um, and I think he was making the contrast with India at the time, and I think this is quite a while ago, but saying basically that in an environment where people trust each other, everybody can bless everybody else and you can do business. Um, But where there is a lack of trust, what happens is, is that when you help somebody, you sort of feel like you're losing out. You might do it anyway, but there's a sense of a fear that actually... I might be losing out, okay? It's called zero sum, a zero sum game. If I give you something, it means I lose something. 
Or if somebody has a benefit over here, it means that somebody has lost something over here. But that's not how God's kingdom works. God kingdom, God's kingdom is where we give something away, actually everybody benefits. And this is the world that God had in mind when he created the world. So, so that world that God created would have been um, just amazingly productive and abundant with all kinds of blessing and that would have been economic and in terms of relationships as well. Um, but the fall wrecked all of that. It wrecked that and it made these kinds of unguarded relationships very difficult and impossible. And so instead of a world that responds to humans and where people can put others first without fear of losing out, conflict and calamity was introduced and, and the result was broken relationships at every level. Um, a lack of trust and fear of other people became the norm. And so we see this in the very beginning of the Bible when Cain, after Cain kills Abel, and God says to Abel, to Cain, what have you done? Um, and then God sends Cain away as a punishment. And Cain, Cain then he says to God, Cain is very self-pitying, okay? A typical narcissist. Um, he's just killed his brother and he feels sorry for himself. But what he says to God is, is basically, what am I going to do? Anybody I meet is going to kill me. And so God has to put a special mark on Cain to protect him. But that is an indication of how um, in that immediately broken world, that, that bond of trust between people was lost. And we also see it in Genesis 3 where God um, spoke to the woman. God spoke to the snake and to the man and the woman. But when he says to Eve, he says, your desire is now going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Now, it doesn't sound good, does it? It sounds to me like pain and conflict being introduced into human relationships, fear and mistrust of others, and then dominion becoming domination of other people. So instead of there being this godly stewarding and looking after the creation and developing it, now there's this urge to dominate and exploit other people. Because we are made in God's image, actually we can't escape our original calling. Our, our calling, whether we like it or not as humans, is to rule over the world. We can't escape that. But because we are now fallen and cut off from God, and because now lack of trust and sin marks our relationships, it's impossible for us to fulfill that, that calling. And so the calling becomes twisted, and it becomes domination. And on a global scale, as we were just praying, it becomes wars, child trafficking, modern slavery, becomes famines, disasters, the destruction of the environment. Big problem, right? Well, there is good news. And this is where Hebrews is kind of interesting. Because the calling to rule over the world was given to human beings, the task of restoring it has also been given to human beings. And in order for that to happen, there needed to be a fresh start, okay? And there needed to be a new Adam. There needed to be a new head of humanity. And so Jesus came into the world and was incarnated as a man, and he lived as one of us, and he entered into our sufferings. And the culmination of Jesus' life was that he lived out, he, he identified with and he experienced the total the total kind of experience of, of death and suffering and all its horror and isolation. 
And this is, what he, this is what our passage means when it says that Jesus was made perfect. It doesn't mean that Jesus, he wasn't perfect to begin with, but he added to his sinless perfection the experience and, the conse- and, and his experience of the consequences of our predicament and our pain and suffering. And so in, even though he didn't deserve any of that, and he didn't have to go through any of that, he allowed himself to go through that. And as a result, he became truly our representative and our captain. He became the leader and the author of our salvation because he identified with us. In, without sinning himself, he experienced the, the full consequences of what it means to be a broken and sinful person. Okay, and when he'd done that, God was so pleased with Jesus that he, he put him at his right hand in heaven. Okay, and made him basically the ruler over the entire creation. And that is why Hebrews has this weird stuff in the first two chapters about angels. Um, it says, there's, there's this repeated theme at the beginning of Hebrews that says that Jesus is better than the angels. Um, now, angels are glorious and powerful beings. We tend to, you know, we've cutified angels in our modern culture. You know, they're little cheeky cherubs, you know, like little flying babies. But actually, angels described in the Bible are very, very awesome and often very large beings. And, um, you know, if an angel appeared to us right now, we would be probably tempted to worship it. And in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, uh, where John, um, John meets Jesus, okay, at the beginning of Revelation. But later in the book, as he's seeing all this amazing stuff happening in a different realm, an angel is speaking to him. And um, he actually bows down to the angel and begins worshipping it. And the angel has to tell him, stop it. You mustn't do that because I am also just a servant like you. But the point is, is that the angel is such a glorious, um, awesomely powerful being that John, who knew better, was tempted to glorify him. uh, Yeah, to worship him. But so Hebrews is saying that while angels might be mighty and awe-inspiring in all their glory... Jesus has been made far greater in power and majesty and glory because of that position he's now been given. Um, And because the world and the task of, first of all, looking after it and now of restoring it have been given uh, to people, they were not, that task was not given to angels, okay? It was given to people. And in the process of Jesus coming, and dying and being risen from the dead and being exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has been given a glory that far surpasses that which angelic beings have. Um, And the good news is that we share in that glory, okay? We've been given that glory, okay? Um, And that's why Hebrews says angels were made for for a little while, they were made higher than us but the implication is that in the new creation actually we're going to be ruling over even angels so Jesus was not ashamed to identify with us in all the filth shame and suffering of our sinful lives Um, and Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us that we should fix our eyes upon Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I often talk about this at funerals, okay? 
Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured, endured the cross and despised its shame. Okay, now what was that joy that was set before Jesus that enabled him to go through that, that, um, that humiliation and, and pain of the cross? Well, it was basically us. It was his brothers and sisters that he was going to bring to glory. That was the joy that Jesus had in mind when he hung on the cross. It was the new people of God, that new family that he was going to create as a result of being raised from the dead. Okay? And for him, the agony of being crucified and the shame of being crucified, this was far outweighed by the joy of the new community that he was going to create as a result. And it enabled him to go through it. Now, another important part of us, um, of what it means for us to have been brought to glory is that, as we've already seen in that passage in Ephesians 2, um, it, Paul says, we've been created in Christ for good works that which God prepared beforehand. Um, and I want to suggest that, you know, we tend to think about good works as like helping old ladies across the road or, you know, we, again, we tend to cutify it. We tend to make it folksy. And we tend not to think of it in terms of um, bigger things or even smaller things that lead to bigger things. And I want to suggest that the good works that God prepared for us beforehand are the things that we will do that will end up in the transformation of the world. And as we were singing earlier, what will transform this world into the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, just going back to the start of Hebrews, the writer tells us that God has spoken in many ways, but in these last days, God has spoken by his son. And um, the phrase, the last days, is another one of these phrases that we're often very glib about. And usually in Christian circles, when we talk about the last days, we, we usually associate that with uh, the, end of, the end of the world, okay? Um, but I want to say that I don't believe that the phrase the last days means the end of the world. What it means is it's the last chapter of the book. And sometimes the last chapter of a book can be the longest chapter of a book. It's not always that way, but it can be. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Um, but when the sons and daughters have been brought to glory and who sit at the right hand of Jesus... And they carry out the task of discipling the nations until everything is restored. And, that the, and until the knowledge of the glory of God covers the waters as, as it covers, sorry, covers the earth like the waters covers the sea. What we're talking about is the last era of human history. The, the, the phrase the last days refers to the last era of human history. And the last era of human history is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ which has already begun. Okay, so the last days, these days that we're living in, they're not necessarily the end of the world. And I hope that for some of you maybe that this will help you not to be too fearful about world events. Um, it's easy to get, I'm not trying to minimize what's happening in the world right now, but sometimes we can become overly fearful about what's happening. Um, but Jesus has everything under control and he's working out the implications of his kingdom, that his rule and reign is, is something that is happening. Okay. Now, you might be thinking, we read our Bibles. We know all this, Jason. Why are you telling us this? Um, 
but this sense of Jesus ruling and reigning and us being in him at the Father's right hand, I want to ask the question, is that something that we feel we actually experience in our lives? Is that a reality that we think about? I know that maybe some of you do think about it, but I think probably most of us don't think about it. Um, just before our passage in, in Hebrews 2, it says that God has subjected everything to Jesus, but we do not yet see everything subjected to Jesus. Okay, and that's what I'm getting at when I'm asking, do we experience this? Is this, is this sense or truth of us sitting at the right hand of God in Christ, is this a reality for us? Well, Hebrews anticipates that question by saying, while, G while everything has been subjected to Jesus, we don't necessarily see everything right now subjected to Jesus. Uh, we could say that we still see the world in a mess. And as individuals, we still struggle with things in our own lives and in our relationships. But the writer says that even though we don't see yet everything fully subjected to Jesus, we actually do still see Jesus crowned with honor and glory. So let me ask you, do you see Jesus crowned with honor and glory? Actually, the thing that we can see very plainly and clearly is each other. What is it that Jesus is doing that we can see in each other? Well, what Jesus is doing is that he is progressively creating a new family of God. And like I said at the beginning, this is not, this is not just a purely spiritual concept. This is not just something that is far in the future, that is for when we die and, and, and there's a different dimension that we live in with God. This is something that's happening now and the concrete manifestation of what Jesus is doing, of Jesus himself, is what we see of him in each other. So, as I said at the beginning, we're called to love and serve one another. We often feel like we do a poor job of doing that. So God's family, and I think this has come up before, but God's family is not, it's not always helpful to talk about the family of God in terms of a human family that we have experience of. So in the same way that when we talk about God as father, what does it mean for, for God to be father? That can trigger a lot of us because many of us have had negative experiences in, in our families growing up. Some people have had a great, a great family experience, but many of us haven't. And so when we talk about God being a father or God's family being like an earthly family, that can actually action actually hinder us from understanding rather than help us but again if we look to Jesus for the clues then we can see that he has made us brothers and sisters by the path that he's trod of suffering and death um, and so when we overcome struggles and death and when we help each other and we, when we identify one another with our struggles and the suffering that we experience, that is when we see Jesus in each other. And in doing all of this, Jesus has made us, he's presented us to his Father as a new community. Yeah, the world is still fallen but we still live in it. Um, 
He's called us to, to take part in this process of restoring the world and discipling the nations. But at the, at the same time, there's great opposition to that. Um, and we struggle with the most basic things sometimes. And so we, my point is we haven't experienced the fullness yet of the new creation. We struggle with sin and our relationships are still often less than perfect. But the good news for us is that in spite of all of that, God has given us his spirit and he's given each one of us gifts and abilities and callings that are designed to bless others and build each other up. And so remember what I just said earlier at the start about in the, in the original creation, the way that human relationships were supposed to be marked by a complete undefended giving of self to others. Well, actually, because that's what Jesus has done in overcoming sin and death, that is the way God advances his kingdom and that is what our relationships are supposed to be like. So there are many exhortations to love one another in the New Testament and I could have made a list of about 10 or 12 of them. Um, but I think the most important one in my understanding is where just before Jesus died, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, in, as this is related in John, John's Gospel, um, Jesus prayed this. He said, he's talking to his father, he said, I have given them the glory that you gave me. And incidentally, there's, there's the glory again. There's that, that concept of the glory that he has given us that's in the passage in Hebrews. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So this is our calling as Christians in the family of God, to love one another um, and to have such a quality of mutual love and service in our relationships that people outside the church, outside our community, will, they'll just be in no doubt that Jesus is real, that Jesus came into the world and he is in our midst and is the saviour of the world. Um, so this is the challenge for us today. Are we, willing, are we willing to embrace that sort of unguarded openness towards each other um, and, a, and a service of one another that is without fear, um, that is willing to be hurt by others in a way or is willing to take the risk of being hurt because of the love that Jesus has given to us. So in, in, in conclusion, to summarize, um, Jesus through his suffering has, has glorified us and he's made us like him. We are his brothers and sisters, which means that as far as Jesus' glorified humanity goes, we are just like him. Um, in making us his brothers and sisters, he's made us into a new family. And he has seated us at the Father's right hand in heaven with him. And while the fullness of that glory won't be seen until later in the fullness of the new creation, nonetheless, he has given us the power to love one another and serve one another. And he's given us the ability to work together and to make his kingdom a reality on earth. Part of this is struggling and suffering together and bearing with one another in our weaknesses. However, when we do this, the world is going to take note.